0: really just blew me away. It was, you know, just really ripped me open. I thought, you know, if I can do that with our stories, with our histories, our experiences, whether they're contemporary, whether it's about the water protectors or missing and murdered women or uh, residential schools, to authorize into art history with that same weight and value, that's what I wanted to do. So when I started to really think about my own practice and and, and the kind of model that I wanted to create for my own practice, it was not the tortured, conflicted, disturbed individual. It was the master artist that was working with younger people, being able to create a larger body of work. I wanted to bring an indigenous perspective into this canon of art history that really obliterated uh, indigenous point of view you know the, the kinds of paintings I wanted to make in fact it was about surrendering or disappearing my hand in the work you know why are why is there all this homophobia in our communities you know it's really from the colonizer that's brought these um, repressive ideas about sexuality. Because the things that I want to say, the things that are important to me, are political, and they are very much about reflecting the Indigenous experience, the experience of myself, the experience of my family and community.
1: This is a special live episode of Precariat Content, featuring visual artist Kent Monkman. Thanks for listening. Kent is a multidisciplinary artist of Cree ancestry, working in painting, performance, installation, and video. His painting seeks to overturn the settler, painterly tradition through application of the same, and by authorizing through art history otherwise suppressed narratives of indigeneity, while his performance work lays bare sexual colonialism with his partly share inspired alter ego, Mischief Eagle Testicle. This interview was recorded live as part of George Brown College's 26th Annual Labor Fair, which brought artists and activists into the college community to speak to this year's theme, Revolution and Resistance. The audience who joined us for the talk put some questions to the artist toward the end of our conversation. Bridging into this section is the track Dance to Mischief, produced for a video by the same name featuring Mischief Eagle Testicle. The song heralded the artist's late arrival to the event. This was entirely my fault as I sent him to an address on the west side of the city. My questions are breathlessly delivered, the mics glitchy, but Kent, ever graceful, offers us insight into his practice, his studio, and what drives this work that is both timely and centuries overdue. This episode was engineered with the assistance of full-time good boy, Kale Weir.
2: So just to give a little bit of context, um, this is uh, being recorded as part of a podcast called Precariate Content that explores um, art and labor. Um, So as part of the formula of that, can I just ask you to give your name and describe your practices? My name
0: is Kent Muckman. I'm Cree. I'm from Winnipeg. I've been living in uh, Toronto for about 30 years, and uh, I'm primarily a painter, Um, but I work in a variety of other mediums as well. I make films, I do performance art, uh, I create installation works, Um,
2: those are the main ones. Cool, thanks. Thanks. Um, So career is like sometimes a contested term for people. They feel like sometimes it entails a capitulation to the market and market system values. Do you describe yourself as having an art career?
0: Absolutely. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) uh, you have to to survive if you want to really um, have a a full-time occupation as an artist. You have to find a way to uh, make that work Um, economically. um, You have to... um, have money coming in uh, to pay for your studio, to pay for your supplies, to pay for the various things that you create. So I have um, over the last probably 12 years I started hiring assistants and building my studio practice into something much larger than what I could create with my own physical energy because there are limitations to what one human being can, can do in one day and um, I'm pretty ragged right now because I, my studio and I—we've been um, <clears throat> creating an exhibition for a, um, a solo exhibition of my work at the the um, Canadian Embassy in Paris, and uh, which opens in May. So we're just hitting our deadline, which is tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, so uh, you know, I, I'm pretty used to to hitting deadlines like that and working very hard, and. Um, uh, I guess around 2005, 2006, I was in a similar position where I was kind of run ragged. And um, my friends were like, you should hire an assistant to help you. And I was like, oh, I can't afford to hire an assistant because at that point, you know, things were still, I was still pretty much just making just enough to get by to, you know, cover my costs. And I remember uh, just being overwhelmed with... uh, you know, the amount of email and administration that was necessary um, at that point, even at that point. And so I would spend, you know, half a day just like on the computer doing administration. And then I'd run out to the art store and buy all my supplies and do various other errands. And by the time I got back to my studio, it was like three or four in the afternoon, I was already exhausted, right? So then I'd have to start making my work. So I realized, uh, you know, in that process that you know opportunities actually were coming and going, and I wasn't able to even field the emails and respond to them, and I was losing money by not having anyone help me. So, with that in mind, I, I started to hire uh, assistants—one, and then two, and then three, and then four, and then five, and then six—and it just kind of grew um, from there. And um, I, you know, I didn't really do it with uh, any any um, specific. Um, plan. Um, And when I began, it it was really about how do I um, grow my practice and how do I meet the demands of, of, you know, being able to sustain the the interest that was growing uh, for my work. And that was really, was kind of driven by the demands itself. And um, so... You know, when I thought about it, I, I thought you know. At first, I was a little bit conflicted about it because I thought, oh, you know, the artist, as we have come to believe in, cont- in the contemporary or modern um, concept of artists, is that you're a solitary, conflicted or disturbed individual, <laughs> and you're supposed to work uh, and you know by yourself and be tortured and and. Um, and uh, But then I realized you know that 's just a very um, recent model for artists that emerged uh, sort of in the early twentieth century, I guess or late nineteenth century. But prior to that, artists ran at ateliers with numerous assistants and they were workshops that employed numerous people and people were trained in those situations. And so when I started to really think about my own practice and, and, and the, the kind of model that I wanted to create for my own practice, it was not the tortured, conflicted, disturbed individual. It was the master artist that was working with younger people and creating, being able to create a larger body of work. And I remember walking through the Louvre, uh, one of my visits to the Louvre, and uh, I came into the Rubens room. And the, you know Rubens was a very successful uh, artist in his time, and uh there was this suite of maybe i don't know 20 paintings massive paintings and you know very elaborate scenes um and they i noticed the dates on all of those paintings they were all made within you know a three or four year period this was a a commission for catherine de medici and uh i thought how is that humanly possible that you know an artist can make this much work so complex um in that short period of time because i was still struggling to make you know like Two or three very large, complex paintings a year. Well, you know, it was because he had an atelier, and I thought, well, how does an artist even work with other art, young artists, and how do you, how does that work? I mean, if another artist is working on my painting, is it still my work? Well, of course, it's still my work, but I had to kind of make come to this understanding of of what that means to be uh, an, an artist that has other people working on your work for you. And you know, people were you know at first kind of questioning it because it's not necessarily a model that people are familiar with when it comes to painting. Sure, there are conceptual artists, Damien Hirst and Jeff Koons. I mean, they have an armies of people making their work, but they never made their own work anyway, or you know, at, at least um in the in the beginning they might have but you know conceptual work is very different you you know you send someone instructions you know and then they manufacture it for you but as a painter could it still be your work so of course um so I had to learn how to let go, how to train people and um but at that point too into my own work I had already let go of this idea that myself as a painter um my paintings had to be about the individual mark. And that was, again, a modernist construct in terms of, you know, a painting had to be an emotional expression of the artist's hand, you know, the artist himself, whether it was a drip or a splash or a stripe or what have you, And I was really hanging on to that idea that uh, as an artist, I had to, you know, have my unique way of making a mark. So I'd gotten past that and I realized that, uh, you know, the, the kinds of paintings I wanted to make, in fact, um, it was about surrendering or um, disappearing my hand in the work. And as I started to work with other assistants, I was able to train them to paint like me, but also, even, even in painting like me, um, I was, uh, um, not making my, my brush stroke or my unique way of making a mark the central part of my work. It was about, you know, all of these sort of formal aspects of painting were to serve a larger purpose, which was the, um, the entire composition, the storytelling, the larger narrative that I wanted to communicate. So I was able to train um, a number of different artists over the years. Um, many of the first 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 few were right out of art school and so there were limitations to um you know how far they could help me because I you know my skill level was already far ahead of where they were so there were limitations in terms of what they could they could you know how far they could go with with my work um and over the years I've you know some of the painters have kind of moved on and they've developed their own careers and um so it's been uh A transition for me, but now it's become a very essential part of my practice that I have people around me all the time. They tell me where to go, at what time. (laughs) Today, they sent me to 200 King Street West.
2: Why? Uh, How did that happen?
0: (laughs) Um, So, I just show up. I mean, they, you know, they support me in in a number of different ways. And um, for me, it's all about... um, Maximizing the, um, the, the, my time doing the thing that I do best, which is the um, the conceptual part, uh, the creative direction, and um, the leadership that I have in my studio. So, um, when anything else becomes too distracting, if I end up doing things that I shouldn't be doing, they usually pull me off, and they're like, "No, let us do that." And that's how we maximize efficiency in the studio. So, I have a studio manager. I have someone that does social media for the studio and she also produces photo shoots Um, for me. We use photo shoots now to provide source material. Um, We shoot models and that gives us excellent source material for the paintings. Um, I have three painters right now. I have uh, someone that makes sculpture and sculptural installation work. He can kind of build anything and then have someone that assists him. And then I've also recently hired an archivist. She's a, an MFA uh, and she's getting her MFA in art history. She's helping research Miss Chief's memoir, which we're also working on right now. <laughs> so um, there's eight eight assistants right now and uh, everyone has, um, you know, they have fairly defined roles but there are, sometimes there's crossover in terms of uh, who gets sent out to pick up lunch.
2: Right, yeah. So it's, so it's not, so it's art as labor not just as cultural production but also like you're employing an entire team. And, you
0: know, I really People have asked me over the years, you know, oh, you should teach, you should teach, but I really don't like the the model, the uh, the academic model or the the art school model in terms of you know uh, the use of my time. I'd rather train people in my own studio setting, and they also get paid. So I, I've always um, paid as my my assistants as well as I can, and they get incremental raises. And I really believe that um, they're they're their work has value and it should be remunerated and I don't take free interns and I don't have people working for free for me ever. I don't believe in that. I would never do that for, you know, myself. And so I always, um, believe that, um, as a team, what we create in fact, um, perpetuates and grows this model. So everyone's hard work in my studio means that they get more money, they get more raises and, um, the, the longer that, you know, uh, I've been working in this, the, um, the more work we create. So the, the, it, it's the one thing about, um, an artist's career as it evolves is that it only goes or grows as fast as, um, the amount of work that you create. And that was another sort of decision for me in terms of a turning point as an artist was I realized, cause I, I was having this, uh, uh, discussion with uh, uh, someone that was representing me as an art dealer early on and you know I was fighting for the value of the work and I was like well it should be worth you know this much because I only make three of them a year and he said well if you're only making three paintings a year that means that only three collections are going to be able to own your work this year and so in fact that's really slowing down how your your you're, you're your career uh, progresses. So, in fact, you want to be able to make as much work as you can. And for me, I, I, I thought about, well, how do I do that and not compromise the quality? So this is where you know, the team and, and the way I trained my team became really integral into not just creating more work, but also creating excellent work. So that the work, the, the, you know, the quality of the work would never diminish but we would be able to make more of it, so we're constantly tweaking that uh, model and that strategy, and that comes through the collaboration of my team members because they're, they're, their eyes it's like having a, you know eight pair, other eight pairs of eyes on my work all the time as well, and eight brains and you know eight pairs of hands and so they're they're constantly examining what we do and looking for ways to improve um, what happens in the studio nice
2: I think that that um Uh, leads it's a nice segue to thinking about how your work is in tension with some of these institutions so like the classical western atelier model but um, not emphasizing more more the team effort and then thinking about your relationship to some of the institutions so I think um, the the Truth and Reconciliation Commission comes out 150 comes out and your work has gained some ascendancy in that. At the same time you're accessing the archive you're accessing um, um, pre- Um, modern and romantic painterly traditions. Can you talk a little bit about the the tension that your work may or may not be in with some of these broader institutions or traditions?
0: Yeah, so uh, again, this comes back to, uh, I think, um, uh, that those... Moments in, in my own evolution where I really questioned, um, you know, who I was and what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it and the kind of painterly language that I was accepting. And um, you know, what does it mean to be an indigenous artist? What what is an indigenous artist' work supposed to look like? Well, these are questions you have to ask yourself, and there's no right or wrong answer. There's only the answer that's right for you. Um, You know, I painted as an abstract painter for the first 12 years, probably, pushing paint around, trying to think, trying to make that individual mark. And then I realized that I was, um, not only was I working within the tradition of Western um, painting... But I was working with a very reduced vocabulary of Western painting. I was essentially becoming or copying the abstract expressionists, which were a bunch of white guys from New York, you know. So I thought, okay, why am I inheriting this one way or thinking that this is the highest form of of painting or the evolution of painting? So that led me on a a path to really think about what I wanted to say, but also how I wanted to say it. And I thought, you know, I discovered these... um, paintings that told a very subjective perspective of, you know, North American history. It was the European settler perspective of Canada and the U.S., and this is what we would see in our in our museums, you know, at the Royal Ontario Museum or at the AGO, and artists like, you know, George Catlin and Paul Kane, I mean, these were artists from, you know, settler artists from the 19th century, and their work was still being upheld in, in, in our museums as... The authoritative version of you know the, the story of North America, and I thought, well, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of problems with this. So it was not just the art itself that I wanted to interact with, but it was the museums and how the museums represent uh, this story of North America and how they represent Indigenous people. So. I decided to embrace this language of painting because it had the capacity to tell stories. And the the main story that was being told was from the European settler perspective. So I wanted to bring an indigenous perspective into this canon of art history that really obliterated uh, indigenous point of view. And uh, for me, the challenge as a, it also represented the greatest challenge as a painter um, to um, strive to paint like Rubens or like an old master. It's very difficult to do that, and those uh, traditions and that way of um, painting was so deconstructed through modernism that. So few people know how to do it anymore. And it's it's kind of like a lost art form. So I thought, this is really interesting because here is this, you know, this momentum of Western culture that just sort of, you know, swarms and it tries to assimilate everyone around it, yet they've kind of rejected their own traditions. And it was that amnesia about tradition and that amnesia about the past that I wanted to comment on because, you know, when Europeans came to North America, they essentially... Uh, Told Indigenous people, forget about your traditions; they don't matter. You should all be European like us. So, for me, it was also an act of enforcing this idea that tradition and, and you know our relationship to history is important. And uh, but <clears throat> it, it, for me, the the act of um, you know making paintings like that was also very difficult, and represented a challenge. It was also, in a language of painting, because it's representational, um, I knew I had the potential to to reach probably the widest audience, because the work is not so personal, and I, I found that a lot of abstract paintings are very personal, you know, like you, some people will stand in front of, like, I completed a body of work, and um, you know people were kind of puzzling as to what my intentions were and you know I didn't want to have um, that personal language of painting I wanted to have a I knew my per, my own my own personal voice would come through but I wanted it to come through a, a language of painting that was uh, very um, accessible and um, and so that's where how I set about to kind of work in this uh uh, tradition of, of, of representational
2: painting. I see an interesting reversal, because you talk about, like, um, Catelyn um, coming here as a settler painter and seeing instances of um, European-Indigenous hybridity, and then being like, oh, I don't like the dandies you talked about, and being like, oh, I don't want to record that. You don't go in my paintings. And uh, the, your, your work then turns that on its head, and it's like, I'm going to use this European-Western um, tradition and represent what has heretofore been unrepresented. Um, On this head, not just through the indigenous lens are you looking at things, but also through a queer lens. Could you talk a little bit about your concept of sexual colonialism and how it comes out in your work? For sure. So, you know, one of those turning points uh, for me, uh,
0: you know, there's always a series of them. (laughs) As an artist, you're constantly kind of uh, on a quest. Never ends. Um, But... I'd been, you know, working as an abstract painter for a number of years, and, and uh, looking for that, you know, unique way of making a mark. And I, I came across this Cree hymn book in my studio, and for me that represented this kind of hybridity—the influence of, you know, the church on indigenous communities. And I cracked it open, and there were all of these Cree syllabics, all Christian hymns. And, you know, I grew up in going to uh, church with my parents, um, you know, native churches, all indigenous people. Um, and uh, you know, I was at that time. I was also thinking about um, why you know why are why is there all this homophobia in our communities? You know, it's really from the colonizer that's brought these um, uh, repressive ideas about sexuality. So um, I wanted to make a, a body of work that really addressed these themes of colonized sexuality. And so I used those Christian hymns um, and I submerged, you know, these kind of struggling male bodies beneath the layers of the Cree syllabics. And uh, I was able to begin this larger conversation about these themes that were really important to me. And then when I finished that uh, body of work, you know, I had these kind of semi-abstract works that people were puzzling over. So I thought, you know, I need a more direct way to talk about these themes. And, you know, um, I wanted to to communicate. And, um, you know, when I really thought about what, I, what my art is to me, it's about communication. I don't want to um, obscure it with uh, a language that's too personal or or, you know, make art just for art's sake. I really want to reach uh, as many people as possible because what's important to me is to address colonization, to address um, this history of Europeans colonizing Indigenous people and all of the things that have happened. And, you know, my exhibition Shame and Prejudice really... um, I I was given the opportunity to create a body of work that really um, brought focus to that. So... um, I think that was how I was able to kind of enter art history and start thinking about how Indigenous people thought about two-spirit people, about people who were um, in the third gender that kind of broke or cracked, you know, European binary ideas about gender and, and sexuality. And this existed in, in Indigenous North America, and. Um, because it was something that had been repressed through colonization, I wanted to talk about it in the context of period before the treaties were signed, you know, and this is the period of art history that really, um, predated modernism and it all sort of folded and fit together
2: in a way that I was able to bring these themes forward. Cool. Um, so, in connection to that, we look at like um, the scream, and I think the that image, both in the kind of like colonial imagination, and I'm sh- and I'm sure in like the indigenous historical imagination, is a very harrowing image. Um, and it's a, and I mean it's a, it's a thing that I think m- many people will find challenging to confront, both as a reality and as and the horror of it. Um, but then there is through other parts of your work these these moments of like high camp and humor can you talk about uh, the the campy and humorous side of your work
0: um well i think uh humor has just been an important part of who i am my, my entire life and i wanted that to come through in my artwork um i think uh I wanted to embrace uh, that element of um, camp that uh, is present in queer culture, um, and it's also an element of humor that's present in indigenous um, uh, thinking and in our storytelling and uh, in the way we think about the world, or basically our cosmology. I mean, our our creator is the trickster, you know. So the trickster is the one who creates and kind of screws everything up so um, miss chief I created miss chief with this kind of similar qualities you know she's kind of rampaging through art history and she's confronting these colonizers and she's also kind of a flawed um, character herself and um so I think uh, the, the humor is, is really central to the work, um, and I've been able to find that balance of stitching humor into sometimes situations that are um, kind of devastating in, in terms of their um, impact on indigenous people, but uh, humor is the thing that also uh, keeps us going, and uh, you, can, you can laugh yourself out of some pretty dark situations, I think.
2: So you talked about the early part of your career being kind of like hermetic, working away in your garret, as it were, and then uh, you said that you switched mediums, uh, specifically thinking about performance, and then I think you've done some collaboration with Native Earth, is that right? Um, Can you talk about how collaboration has come to figure in your work? Yeah, so it basically began as uh, I was really
0: bored and lonely in my own studio, (laughs) and uh, I was drawn to um, Indigenous performers who were friends of mine, and uh, I just wanted to collaborate because... uh, I felt like I, I was probably always a closet performer and, uh, but never really um, made that a priority in my life. I always was, you know, felt more comfortable being a visual artist so I started to collaborate with um, you know, indigenous uh, actors and uh, d- did a short stint with Native Earth. But really those were uh, ways of expanding my practice um, which led me to um, installation work, which led me to making my own film and video works. Um, so it was all part of the evolution and you know I never really set out to, to become a performance artist I never really set out to become a filmmaker but was just kind of drawn to those things through my own creative instincts and um, so I think Miss Chief kind of furnished the when I, I, I created her first as a as a as a two d you know painting as a drawing, and then there was this opportunity for her to emerge as a performance art character and that was really kind of um, exciting and um, it really changed my practice and also changed my relationship to painting and and then all, you know all of a sudden she 's in the so it's showing up in the films and you know it really
2: kind of opened things up nice i had um this 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 question requires a bit of setup so um if we think of um, the, the painting as kind of like redressing, resetting, or um, uh, more accurately representing uh, a history, that also, of course, impacts the present and the future. There is there is a kind of um, assertion of indigeneity that de- kind of demands it be taken account of. It's not just truth and reconciliation. It also enters into the imaginary. Um, this is the second part. We see since 2008, the, the recession, this, this dissatisfaction with capitalism is becoming pronounced and people are looking for alternatives. Um, there's a resurgence of socialist, socialism, Marxism. We also see a lot of lefties looking to indigenous traditions to inform contemporary politics. Do you have any thoughts on that? Does, does your work connect to that? Do you see your work as being part of a broader political project or do you see yourself as, being, as letting the work speak for itself?
0: I think um, I've always considered myself to be an activist as an artist because the things that I want to say, the things that are important to me are political, and they are very much about reflecting the Indigenous experience, the experience of myself, the experience of my family and community, and um, I wouldn't have it any other way. I feel as though... um, um, in using uh, the conventions of you know, uh, art history and work, being able to work through these institutions, again, it, it's about reaching the widest audience possible. How are we going to change the world if we don't talk to everybody? And so the work really is about speaking to Europeans who have no idea, speaking to Canadians who should know better. Um, you know, It's about speaking to our own people and having a laugh about stuff but the whole point is to really communicate as widely as possible
2: excellent thanks um at this time i would like to uh, offer the audience an opportunity to ask some questions does anybody have any questions for mr monkman if, so the mic's just over here if you don't mind so yeah the mic will be here if people want to have a talk
3: Um, um, I have a question about um, being an indigenous artist at the confluence of like the um, modern global art market in where your work is seen as um, the the value of it is not so much around what uh, is actually being portrayed, but how it's going to be seen as the commodity. Right? And how, as an Indigenous person, we're kind of having to reconcile that in our own head where we do want to make money. We want to be able to support and, and be successful. And success in this culture is about the money. right? Like how much are you getting for that, the work that you've done and you've poured your soul into it? So for me, as, a, as an Indigenous person, when we go out and look for work and we have to do that whole I'm selling myself and selling my own knowledge, and then it gets tapped into in a way that you may not be getting the value because as indigenous people in a non-indigenous setting, our knowledge, our cultural knowledge, our cultural teachings, our cultural um, uh, um, you know way of being gets tapped by our employers. And in your case, the work itself is being offered on a global market. And I'm, I'm really curious about Um, you know, where, like, you know, it's great to get all that money. (laughs) I mean, I love that. Like, I love being able to say that my, my value is at X level and it could probably go higher and that, but it's really interesting to me that the global art market says that art is as a commodity is traded and it gets value assigned the more people it goes through. Essentially, like you get, you buy a painting, you can sell it for X, and then you buy another one. You get, it, and then you have this accumulated sort of money. So for us, uh, for like as an indigenous artist, you kind of go, "Yeah, that's that's really great if I can tap into that." So now you're at the point where you're you're kind of tapping into that. And I wonder, does it does it change your art?
0: Excellent question. Um, and of course, I have to to think about all of these things all the time because uh, a large part of what I do is. Um, you know i have a i have a studio that has to be supported but um the market uh for my work has enabled me it has changed my practice in that it's enabled me to make more work to push it further to make better work and in many ways to uh, it's given me opportunities like this uh, this um exhibition at university of toronto to make an exhibition uh, uh, uh you know, to make a a political statement, it's given me a forum for my work, and, um, you know, as an artist, I've always prioritized my own, like, my, my practice, so whenever I had a little bit of money, I would pay for my studio, I would pay for supplies, and so whenever there's any profit, it just goes back into the, goes back into the practice, um, and that means that the vision can expand and can go wider and wider. And fortunate, and so far, fortunately, there's I've only had one kind of uh, one of those uh, speculator collectors <laughs> buy my work, uh, who wanted to you know flip it and re- resell it like very shortly after. And and you know I'm, I've been lucky that most of the people buying my work up until now. Are people that really love the work? They really appreciate, you know, the statement. They really appreciate what I'm trying to do. So, so they they hang on to the work. They're not they either give it to an institution. A lot of the works that are in institutions are actually, you know, bought by private collectors and then gifted to an institution. So I'm fortunate in that sense. But yes, the, the, the that level of success, like I said, it has, uh, it's afforded me that. Ability to hire other artists to to make expand and 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 really that's what I keep doing. I keep reinvesting it. Uh, we reinvested in in new te- newer technologies. Like you know, even though I'm kind of um, working with a tradition of a painting that's you know a few hundred years old, we use iPads and we you know we use projectors and we use technology. We use Photoshop. We use all the new technologies to uh, as our tools.
4: It's not really a question, but I'm hoping that you'll comment. Um, in leading up to your visit, we've um, been talking to colleagues, and it's come through that a lot of people use your images in presentations or are trying to, we're teaching about, um, you know, indigenous issues, classes in our general education electives, and it's been a really powerful thing, and I just wanted to sort of say thank you because it provides a new, modern, current, popular kind of vehicle that opens those conversations about uh, other realities and the, the mythologized assumptions we have about a colonial time and our present colonial time. And I just wondered if you would maybe elaborate or comment, or because those are so powerful and there are so many discussions going on since U of T presentation, prior to your visit today, after your visit today, and it's so... I just I don't wanna take too much time, but I remember educators, colleges, universities, indigenous initiatives talking at OFIFC, a leadership organization in the community, and across the street is a big mural of colonial depiction you know, women in period clothing, horse and buggies, it's huge and it's staring at us and we're all in this boardroom across and, and of course indigenous people are completely absent. The the absurdity, ridiculousness, and kind of violence of that has stuck with me. And when I saw your work for the first time, I was like, BAM, <laughs> you know, this is it. This is a way into the new conversation about these things. So I just want to say thank you, leave that comment here for everyone, and ask if you maybe could talk a little bit more about that for us today.
0: For sure. So this goes back, of course, to my interest in, in art history and how those images of art history from European settler art history have been um, so effective uh, in terms of brainwashing people and, and, and creating uh, this erasure of, you know, Indigenous experience and histories and cultures. And um, so uh, that's been my, 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 my goal, is to make images that really shatter and challenge and, and create something new. But it has been in, in step with my abilities, my actual abilities as a painter to pull that off. And about six, five, six years ago, I was in the Prado standing in front of this um, Spanish history painting, you know, very large scale, um, beautiful painting, but very somber. And and it was a political piece about um, um, some patriots that were being executed by firing squad. And it really just blew me away. It was, you know, just really ripped me open. And... I thought, you know, if I can do that with our stories, with our histories, to authorize into art history our experiences, whether they're contemporary, whether it's about the the water protectors or missing and murdered women or uh, residential schools, to authorize into art history with that same weight and value, that's what I wanted to do. So this was, you know, five, six years ago. And I thought, oh, you know, how do I do that? You know, because there was a big leap from just little figures in landscapes to, you know, large-scale figures in big paintings. And there had to be a progression. So this is where I, I you know, just kept moving towards that. And eventually, you know, we got there with uh, Shame and Prejudice. And for me, that was... Um, many years of intention many years of trying to bring my practice to that point and um, I didn't really know how that body of work or that exhibition would be received because I knew it would. It was troubling the waters and I wanted it to, that was the whole intent, intent. and uh, about a week before the exhibition opened um, my assistant Jamie posted it on Miss Chief's Facebook page and It just went viral. Like we watched the the shares and the numbers go up and up and up. So within about a week, it had three hundred thousand views, and uh, for me, that is the highest compliment that teachers or educators are using these images. And I mean, you couldn't ask for something better than that. And I'm delighted. And you know, it really affirmed um, that this is the direction that I want to keep going in. And you know, there's a long list, <laughs> a growing list of other subjects that I'm working on, and most recently, uh, a good friend of mine that I actually collaborated with in in the theater community, Floyd fable He's now the director of the Poundmaker Museum in Saskatchewan, and he said, "Would you make a, a history painting of Poundmaker?" Because Poundmaker, you know, they're they're um, trying to get him exonerated because he was wrongfully accused of treason. So for me, that is the highest honor, you know, to create a work for the community itself. So um, that's kind of one of the next projects uh, this spring is to make a painting for the Poundmaker Museum. And so the, the whole point is to really shift how, how Canadians and North Americans and the world really
2: think about Indigenous people and to create more space for us great thanks that's a really excellent way to conclude I think Um, I just wanted to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to come into our community we're going to you know burden you with a bunch of swag to take home (laughs) I think you get one of these fellows so thank you very much
1: Carriet content is produced by me, Ben McCarthy. If you have any questions, complaints, comments, or suggestions about artists I should interview for the podcast, please contact me at not sorry at paleeyes.com. That's N-O-T-S-A-W-R-Y at pale eyes music.com I may be slow in getting back to you, but I will get back. You can follow me on Instagram at paleeyesmusic artwork for precariat content was produced by alison escobar web design is by jonathan carroll and can be found at precariatcontent.com there you can find pictures of the artists links to their work and to details referenced in the podcast i want to extend a special thanks to kent for his bearing with my inattention to detail and for coming into our community to answer our questions and to you for choosing to spend your time with this work If you like what you've heard here, you probably have a sense of what to do about it. Subscribe, say nice things to the Apple overlords, post links to your favorite interviews, or just tell somebody. The next episode about which I'm really excited profiles Brooklyn-based experimental turntablist, installation artist, and DJ, Maria Chavez. In it, Maria explains her resistance to recording her own work, and I will attempt to apply the experimental techniques described in her excellent book of technique, Chance Procedures on Turntable.